Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Changing the Game with HR, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the HR status quo and how people are organized, engaged, and motivated to create real business impact. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. I always say it, I always mean it, and we are sure it is true. So what's the buzz today? Well, I have a long quote from an HBR.org article. That's Harvard Business Review. Just bear with me, and it'll set the stage for our topic. So here's the quote. The article was called, What's the Hard Return on Employee Wellness Programs by Leonard Berry, Ann Mirabito, and William Bond, B-A-U-N. Here's the quote. Since 1995, the percentage of Johnson and Johnson employees who smoke has dropped by more than two-thirds. The number who have high blood pressure or are physically inactive has declined by more than half. That's great, but should it manage, matter to managers? And here's the part I want you to listen up for. Well, it turns out that a comprehensive, strategically designed investment in employees' social, mental, and physical health pays off. J&J's leaders estimate that wellness programs have cumulatively saved the company $250 million on health care costs over the past decade. From 2002 to 2008, the return was $2.71 for every dollar spent. So there's a clue. We're talking about HR, of course. This is Changing the Game with HR Radio, and we're talking about health and wellness and employees. So let me get a little deeper into the topic here before I introduce our expert panelists. So from insurance provider to wellness enabler, HR's role today, you know, they hire, they bring in, they try to get the best everybody. Well, it may also include a focus on the workforce's welfare. Why? Because we all know good health Good well-being practices can positively influence how we feel, how we work, how we relate to each other, how we come to work and want to get the job done. However, uh, you know, there was a little controversy to this. Not everybody's in agreement. While HR is traditionally responsible for people strategies, you attract, you retain, you develop, you engage, you bring out the best in your talent pool, you go for the best to try and get them away from the competition nicely, of course. But some people worry that, I'm putting this word in quotes next, Fitbitization of HR wellness programs may cross a line. We're going to explore this today with our panel. Let me just tell you who they are before I introduce them. First up, we'll be speaking in a moment to Linda Townsend. She's the founder of a company called Release Wellbeing Center. And she'll tell us about what her company does in a few minutes. Also, another newcomer, Grant Gordon, CEO and co-founder of a company called Artemis Health. And rounding out the panel, our third newcomer, woohoo, Joe Sherwood, HCM researcher at SAP Success Factors. And of course, oh, somebody's getting a message. And a shout out to the sponsor of the series who can't join us today, Dr. Patty Fletcher at SAP Success Factors. So Linda Townsend has sent me a quote from Plato. Come on, everybody. You remember classical Greek philosopher, founder of the Academy in Athens, and here's a little historical lookup. Unlike nearly all of his philosophical contemporaries, Plato's entire work is believed to have survived intact for more than 2,400 years. His teacher was Socrates, and his most famous student was Aristotle. Here's the quote Linda has selected from Plato. The part can never be well unless the whole is well. Linda Townsend, how are you today? Are you well? 
<laughs> I'm doing great, Bonnie. Thank you. How are you? Thanks. I'm very well. Thank you for asking. I'm well. I'm glad we're all well. And your company is the Release Wellbeing Center. First, tell us a little bit about the quote from Plato related to our topic. And then I'll give you, oh, 60, 90 seconds to tell us your elevator review of what does your company do. So first, talk to me about the quote, please. Sure. Um, so this is a quote that's near and dear to my heart because it speaks to an early understanding for the need for a holistic approach to medicine. So not to look at somebody's symptoms if they go to the doctor with a headache, say, but to look at the whole person, the mind, body, and the spirit. So a, pr- a practitioner that approaches healthcare holistically believes that the whole person is made up of interdependent parts. So if one part is not working properly, all the other parts will be affected. So again, um, to use the headache example, if somebody goes to the doctor with a migraine, instead of just walking out with a prescription or two for, for a headache, the doctor is going to look at all the potential factors that may be causing the person's headache. They're going to consider diet. They're going mm-hmm. to look at what stress the person might be under. They're going to talk to them about their sleep habits. They're going to explore any emotional imbalances in addition to the examination of the physical body. So the treatment plan's not just going to be prescriptions. It may involve prescriptions, but it's also going to involve lifestyle modifications that will help prevent the headaches from recurring. Other principles of holistic medicine include that all people have, we can heal ourselves, essentially, by taking care of ourselves. We have the power to heal ourselves. Um, Also, that a patient is a person, not the disease or issue that they're experiencing. That healing takes a team approach involving the patient and a doctor and addresses all aspects of the person's life. And that treatment involves fixing the cause of the condition, not just alleviating the symptoms. Thank you, Linda. Good overview there. I appreciate it. Yes, a headache. When is a headache not a headache? When it's a lot more. I think we'll leave it at that. Tell me briefly, what does your organization do? Release Wellbeing Center, please. So Release Wellbeing Center approaches health care or wellness care rather holistically. So we kind of, if you look at healthcare as a spectrum from the far left being somebody who's very ill to the far right to the extreme well-being, we kind of meet people in the middle and take them to the right of that spectrum holistically. So, um, so we're not really addressing diseases or injuries per se, but just boosting well-being to a, um, a, a healthy person. And we do that through... Um, all the aspects of well-being, including yoga, meditation, fitness. We have a whole spa area that has spa treatments, including massage, skin care, alternative healing modalities such as acupuncture, Reiki, reflexology. And then we have this really cool area in our spa area called Bliss, which has different healing rooms, including a, um, a Himalayan salt room, a eucalyptus steam room, a sun sauna, which has 10,000 lux light panels in the ceiling and infrared panels around the perimeter of the room, so literally simulating a sunshine experience. Uh, 
Linda, I think we we're going to stop the show. We're all coming over. We're, we're going to be there. <laughs> Come on Grant, over. Grant and Joe it, and right? I. We, I, we I, could I, be meeting in the Himalayan salt room right now. I, I, I think we're going to have a salty conversation. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Thank you for well, I didn't mean that that way. Thank you so much. Interesting. Grant Gordon is up next, and Grant has sent us a quote from Steve Jobs. And do I have to say who he is? Well, Steve Jobs, 1955 to 2011, left us way too soon. Co-founder, chairman, CEO of Apple Inc., CEO and majority shareholder of Pixar Animation Studios, member of the Walt Disney Company's board of directors after it was, it was acquired by Pixar, founder, chairman, and CEO of Next Inc., widely recognized as a pioneer of the microcomputer revolution of the 70s, along with his co-founder of Apple, Steve Wozniak, the Woz. And interestingly enough, they both loved the music of Bob Dylan, and they collected bootleg reel-to-reel tapes of Bob Dylan's concerts. Anybody out there who's too young to know what reel-to-reel tapes are, look them up, R-E-E-L to R-E-E-L, and you will find them. Here is the quote. It's a long one, so bear with me. When you first start off trying to solve a problem... The first solutions you come up with are very complex, and most people stop there. But if you keep going and live with the problem and peel more layers of the onion off, you can sometimes arrive at some very elegant and simple solutions. Most people just don't put in the time or energy to get there. Grant Gordon, welcome to Game Changers. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So tell me, are you a big fan? And did you know that Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs were both uh, co-fans of Bob Dylan to the extent that they collected bootleg tapes? Seriously? <laughs> you know, um, I had heard that story. Um, I don't know a ton about Steve Jobs beyond that, sadly, but uh, I had heard that. It's pretty interesting. So tell me about the quote. We're talking about elegant solutions, elegant and simple, but you've got to peel off that onion. Talking about health, onions are supposed to be very, very good for your health. So tell me how this quote relates to our topic, please, Grant. Well, first of all, if I had known I was going to follow Plato, I would have tried to go a little bit classier, feel a little sheepish. But um... <laughs> not, not at all, not at all. You're fine. Go ahead. So this quote is, is very near and dear to my heart. I, um, I'm a product guy at my core, and I, I live my life by this mantra of everything seems complex, but if you keep pushing, you keep pushing, you're going to get something that's elegant and, and simple um, and a really good solution. Um, this is how I run my company. It's how I run my life. Um, and it's also the way I think about healthcare. And, and what brought this to mind in this particular topic is, when you think about solving the challenges of healthcare at a macro level, the first thing you want to reach for is providers because they're doctors. They're the people you go to to get healthcare. And so a lot of the solutions we've seen pop up over the last 10, 20 years are very provider focused. Um, but if you take a step back and you think about, you know, if you're, how do you wield change here? Another perspective is you could follow the money. And the government ends up paying for a, a good chunk of, of health care, and hopefully they're going to do mm-hmm. a good job and do what they're going to do. But the remainder is almost entirely paid for by employers. Um, and employers are in an interesting position where um, the amount of money that they pay for health care matters to them because it comes out of their bottom line, and it's one of their top mm-hmm. three costs. Um, and it, it matters in a way that it doesn't to providers and other insurance companies. Also, they have levers to pull to help people make better healthcare decisions that nobody else in the ecosystem does. They can, mm-hmm. um, to your point, change the environment of the workplace. They can roll out programs. They can incentivize people by giving them extra money towards their benefits, um, et cetera, et cetera. 
And the thing I like the most is that when you go out and you actually talk to HR benefits folks, they really care about their people. Um, because to them, like, th- that's their flock, right? They're, they're trying to make sure they're happy, they're healthy, they're not going to different companies, that they're mm-hmm. productive. And so there's a really nice backstop there. Um, and so when we were looking at jumping into the healthcare space and thinking about how to fix it, that sort of lit up in like a Christmas tree after we'd thought about a lot of the complex solutions. So, you know, on the topic of are we going too far with the Fitbitization of um, healthcare and, and HR? I mean, I don't know, but I think it's a very interesting lever to pull to try to get the best possible care at the lowest possible price. Agree. And one thing you you didn't mention in your list of why HR needs to be invested in the wellness of their employees, I think you just want them to show up, right, Grant, whether they're yeah. <laughs> on site, whether they're remote. You want them to come to work. You want them to put in at least the time you expect them to. You want them to be engaged in what they're there or supposed to be there to do. Very interesting. Were you surprised at some of the statistics I read in that HBR article about J&J? You know I was. I would love to drill in a little bit deeper on which programs they were and how they were measuring that return on investment because <clears throat> the kinds of programs they were citing that we typically don't see, uh, but we can get into that later. Okay. And, and by the way, if you want to go to the article, I put the link into, I will put the link into a tweet so you can find it at hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. I'll put that in a link in next week for you. Thank you so much. And before we go on to Joe, can you give me the 60-second overview of what Artemis Health is? What do you do? And why did you co-found the company? Well, you know, we, we founded it because um, three co-founders, we really wanted to do something with our data and technology skills that helped us sleep better at night. And, um, you know, uh, long story short, my dad had cancer tragically and I was spending a lot of time mm. at the Huntsman Institute. And I was looking around at thinking, man, healthcare is so important, and this is a premier cancer center, and the software is so terrible. Um, you know, maybe there's a lever there that I could help. So that, that kind of started the journey, and where we ended up was this realization that I already talked about, how employers are this interesting nexus. And so Artemis helps self-insured employers find and actually capture the value and the data generated by their healthcare and benefits um, so they can offer the best possible care at the lowest possible cost to their employees and the families. Obviously, your heart is in the right place. I'm sorry about your dad. I lost my sister to cancer a little over two years ago, and it was just a, a brutal experience. So I Thank you. completely understand. Uh, okay, so let's put our smiley face back on, and let's introduce <laughs> Joe Sherwood at Success Factors. I'm, I'm sorry, trying Joe. to, you know, we're talking about health, and it, there are health, and there's not health. And so we are, we are bound to cover some things that may not be. And look at what happened to Steve Jobs. So uh, Joe Sherwood has sent us a quote from Voltaire. And I promised Joe I would tell him what Voltaire's real name is, his given name. Voltaire was his nom de plume, okay, but his real name is Francois-Marie Arouet, A-R-O-U-E-T. He lived from 1694 to 1778, a French Enlightenment writer, historian, philosopher, famous for his wit, his attacks on the established Catholic Church, his advocacy of freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and separation of church of state. And interestingly, uh, Joe, you may not know this, he wrote more than 20,000 letters, more than 2,000 books and pamphlets. He also wrote plays, poems, novels, essays, and historical and scientific works. I think probably one of the early Renaissance writers or Renaissance men who just kept writing. Here's the quote Joe has selected, and I think this needs some explaining, please. The quote is, <laughs> life is a... Oh, here we go. Put, a, put on your, your seatbelt is how I end the show, but I'm going to say it now. Life is a shipwreck. 
but we must not forget to sing in the lifeboats. I can hear the chorus on a Broadway stage say, Joe is cueing them and saying, okay, side actors, okay, extras, start singing in the lifeboats. Maybe it's Guys and Dolls, I don't know. There was a song about the lifeboat or the raft in Guys and Dolls. Joe Sherwood, welcome. Tell me, Voltaire, tell me about the quote, please. Sure. Um, so really, this comes from the idea that, and not just the fitbitization, but really the digitalization of work and the workforce can be disruptive. And, and even more than disruptive, it can be downright scary at times. And so I guess I relate that back to this idea that sometimes it can feel like our ship is sinking, and especially on a personal level, um, as tasks are automated or as um, new technologies require new skills or um, new effort and change in how we accomplish work. And so just thinking about how this can be scary, um, I think the value is not in focusing on the fact that a ship might be sinking or that it might feel that way, but rather how can we adapt to this change and how can we sort of use the talents and skills that we possess to our advantage and continue to provide value to the organizations that we work for. And so relating this back into um, the fitbitization mm -hmm. specifically, um, if you consider how it might be uncomfortable to have your health data tracked or measured from your employer, it really comes down to how are you being treated? How do you perceive your employer? Do you trust them? Do you believe that they support you and have your best interests at heart? And so it's this idea that, yeah, there might be some um, scariness in it, but really it's, it's about remaining positive and, and thinking about how we apply our, our skills and talents in a new world. Thank you. And, and I was going to ask you, Joe, and, and I'll have Linda and Grant comment on this. I really didn't explain or define what Fitbitization means, but I was looking up to see if I could find a definition while you were speaking, Joe, and, and I think you gave us a great definition. I found an article at MedTech, M-E-D-T-E-C-H, Boston, dot medstro.com. It's a blog from 2015 by Krina Patel, and it's called The Uberization, Yelpification, and Fitbitting of Healthcare. And the comment is, if you'll allow me to read a moment here, Internet of Things, an environment where data sharing via a vast interconnected network of inexpensive sensors, GPS and the cloud, is fast becoming an everyday reality, changing the ways we work, travel, entertain, and get entertained, indeed, the way we live. The Internet of Things at a panel at the Partners Healthcare Connected Healthcare Symposium gathered experts to discuss examples of IoT that could majorly, I like that word, majorly impact healthcare. So there we go. And now they say IoT is trending toward Uberization and Uber-like online platforms on demand. So, Joe, you want to give me your total definition of what Fitbitization is for our context today? Sure. When I think about Fitbitization, I think, you know, sort of progressively, in HR, we've always measured health data to some degree. You know, we, we measure, we look at workers' comp claims, um, but this is becoming more more... It's becoming increasingly more prevalent, and, and you could even say invasive, you know, in some ways, but it might just feel that way, and I think it depends on who you work for and how they sort of project the reason for, um, 
collecting that information. So let me give you maybe a, a brief story. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, my team, I was working as a you know, graduate assistant researcher, and we were working with these construction workers, and we went in there and we were doing a research study that examined certain work factors and how that might impact worker health. And so in order to track worker health and sort of correlate these metrics, we asked these employees if we could draw their blood. And these are construction workers, and immediately they were, there was an extreme amount of trepidation. There was this assumption that maybe we were sort of trying to trick them so that we could drug test them. And we had to take mm-hmm. a step back and reevaluate um, how our motivations were perceived. And it came out that really what, what was the problem wasn't necessarily that we were trying to get the blood draws, but rather they did not trust us and they did not trust the organization who sort of was collaborating with our efforts. And so we reframed our communication efforts and we really helped them understand what our purpose there was and that it was really more about them and their own health and how we were really rooting for them and wanting to help them. And so as a sort of agreement, we decided not to track their blood, but they let us track everything short of that. We, at multiple time points, tracked their blood pressure. Um, and three times, we, you know, we sat down just to get a very clear reading, and we, we, we got their blood pressure three times in a row. We had them take off their shoes and socks and stand on a, essentially a bathroom scale. But it, I'm, not, I mean, I'm not familiar with the name of this particular device, but it measured their uh, fat percentage. Um, and we tracked all these things, and they were all open to doing that multiple times, but really we had to come back and, and frame it from a place of trust and, and that we cared about them and their wellness and their own home lives as well. And I think that's really where we come in and that's where, you know, the value needs to be added. It's this creating relationships of trust between organizations, managers, and their employees. And then once you do that, uh, then we can sort of move forward and accept the the reality of technology that exists and use it to our advantage mm-hmm. so that we can uh, accomplish more. And and I'm going to add the word, Joe, use it to our advantage and also to our mutual appreciation because you mentioned several yeah, times that these people did not trust. So you had all great intentions. They didn't know that. They didn't know who in the heck you were, where the data was going to go, who might be in on the on their secret or not their secret. By the way, there are, they're called... Uh, um, Body fat scales, uh, there, there were reviews, best reviews, uh, bestreviews.com, but one is called a smart way, W-E-I-G-H, very clever, digital bathroom, BMI body fat weight scale, and you can get it at Amazon, and I think that's maybe something you were referring to. Let's go around, I'm not going to do product reviews here, let's go around the table to Linda Townsend. <laughs> Linda, your thoughts about what is Fitbitization of healthcare in the HR context? What does that mean to you with your background? Well, so um, when I think of Fitbitization and, and the usage of it and kind of the, the world that I'm living in, it's definitely more, um, I think it's perceived more positively because the way that we would be using that information or the way we have used that information is to really measure the effects of some of the holistic well-being offerings um, and modalities. So, for instance, measuring blood pressure before and after a meditation, Um, using information about somebody's weight and other health measures as they are practicing holistic well-being practices. Um, So my my experience with it and usage of it is, is, 
I think I'm not running into the negatives that perhaps some other organizations might be. Um, but I totally agree with Joe and what he was saying. If we are looking at um, uh, that use of that kind of information and its perception of being intrusive or crossing a line, I mean, what that really comes down to is trusting the organization that you're working for, trusting the organization that's collecting that information and, and understanding what they're going to do with it and, um, you know. That's my kind of my take on it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And let's circle around to Grant Gordon at Artemis. Grant, what is your take on Fitbitization? And let's put the word trust in there as well. What do you think? (laughs) Well, you know, rather than repeat um, the very um, insightful comments about trust, I think that's kind of the fulcrum around which this whole conversation is going to rotate. Um, In terms of my take on the Fitbitization piece, um, you know, I've been doing this company for about four years now, and over my time, I've probably had the chance to interact with, interview, uh, shadow upwards of 300 benefits teams. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing that's very consistent to me is that they actually don't want to see anybody's data individually. They're terrified of it. Because ah. the last thing they mm-hmm. want is for somebody to get fired for a totally unrelated reason. Yeah. who happens to have some kind of sensitive condition or something like that, um, they don't want to know. What they do want to know is, you know, looking at my population, thinking about the groups that are here, how can I roll out programs that materially impact their lives? How can I make them, you know, not just happier at work, but also happier at home because I, I reap the benefit of that all around and it's the right thing to do. So... The kinds of things that they're trying to track, even if they are pulling in, you know, step-by-step Fitbit kind of data, they're trying to understand, are the programs that I'm using impacting my members in a way that I can Mm -hmm. quantify from a financial perspective or a a healthiness perspective? And, And that's really what it all boils down to. And so what we see is employers trying to instrument all of these programs they roll out. We have some employers that literally have 30, 35 different point solutions around pre-diabetes care, weight loss challenges, you name it. They're trying everything they can to help their employees. And so when I think about the Fitbitization, I think that's a really easy term to grab and it gets headlines. But honestly, Mm -hmm. that's not, they're not jumping to that level. That's really not what they're interested in. I think that's important to take into account in the conversation as well. Thank you very much. All very thoughtful responses. And now it's time for us to get a little personal one at a time. Don't be too shy. I'm going to start off with Linda. Where are you calling from? And what's in your cup today, Linda? Tell me something really interesting. (laughs) Surprise me. What makes you happy? Linda Townsend. So I am calling from Westboro, Massachusetts. And what I have in my cup today is something called Fire Cider. Are you familiar with it? No. Tell me what it is. (laughs) So fire cider is a really cool do-it-yourself homeopathic remedy and tonic. Um, you can make it yourself or it's also becoming so popular that you can, you can buy it lots of places. But it is, if you macerate fresh horseradish, mix it with ginger, garlic, onions, and cayenne pepper, and, you, and it stays in apple cider vinegar for three to four weeks, and then you finish it off with honey. You get a combination of flavors that's hot, sour, pungent, and sweet, and I love it. 
Wow. Um, I looked it up, by the way. (laughs) So anybody looking for it, it's fire, the word fire, F-I-R-E, cider, C-I-D-E-R. And I found a recipe for it on foodiewithfamily.com. Meet Rebecca, whoever she is, a Pilates and bar instructor. And uh, she has a whole recipe and a whole discussion of the homeopathic benefits. And by the way, she uses coconut-infused white balsamic vinegar. Do you use that in yours, Linda? I don't. I use apple cider vinegar and the sweetener is honey rather than coconut. But, but I mean, that's the beauty of it. You can, you can bring in what other, whatever Make herbs, roots, and peels that you want to add to the flavor pr- profile to get your desired taste and strength. I mean, I really like it. it. It's a little bit of an acquired taste. The first time I tried it, it my whole body kind of shivered. Um, but now I'm into it. I'll, I do a shot in the morning. Um, and We're all trying to interpret that one. We're just going to leave it. We're going to leave that on the table. Linda, thank you. I want to move on to Grant. Grant, we're at 2.30 already. We're having a good conversation, though. Grant Gordon, where are you calling from? And what makes you smile in your cup today or any day of the week, Grant? I'm calling from Salt Lake City, Utah today. Um, one of those rare times I actually get to be at the home office, which is exciting. Um, and, you know, there's kind of a running joke around the office that I'm the first one to get here and the last one to leave, and nobody ever sees me without a Diet Dr. Pepper in my hand. Okay. Uh, life of a CEO, I'm just running from thing to thing, uh, you know, solving problems and answering people's questions, settling disputes, that kind of thing. And I, I sort of shed cans of Diet Dr. Pepper as I go, so to kind of track my movement through the office where, where I left the cans. So not as um, <laughs> wholesome as the other drink, but... Uh, that is absolutely what I drink all day, every day. Tell me something. Do you have cases delivered to the office, or do you have a machine that, bla- or do you have a, a private bartender who just uses the syrup and puts the fizz in it? What's your, what's your, what's your poison? I'll say, Grant. Well, someday I'd love a private bartender, but for yes. now, uh, startup perks. We have Costco deliver snacks and frozen food and and drinks once a week, so we keep it all stocked. Very nice to know. I can picture you with that. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at your picture. You're smiling. You probably you're outside. You may have a, a can of that with you. I don't know. Can or bottle? What do you What do you prefer? Uh, I know I prefer bottles, but cans are more economical for the home office. So mostly cans. There you go. Okay, now we know. Joe Sherwood, your turn. Where are you calling from? And what's in your cup today? Or what would you rather be drinking, Joe? <laughs> I am calling from Portland, Oregon, and I normally drink coffee black. Uh, but I knew that you were going to ask this question, so I made sure to make myself a nice green smoothie. So I had some spinach in there and some mangoes and strawberries um, and just blended all that up and put a little protein powder in and slurp her down. Very nice. Slurp her down. Use a straw. Do you use a colored straw? I'm asking for a reason. Just indulge me. <laughs> no need for a straw. Just right down the throat. All right, down the hatch. That's what we used to call it. We used to say <laughs> down the hatch. You're yep. probably too young to remember that. Well, the reason I asked is that they don't let me anywhere near caffeine on radio show days, and today is a doubleheader. I had a show this morning at 10. I'm in New York, and now this one at 2 to 3 p.m. So all they let me have, they is the gods of radio, all they let me have is cool, clear water. So I have a Brita filter in the refrigerator, Brita, and I have a nice clear mug with a, well, it's filled with cool water, and I have a pink straw. That's why I 
asked you, Joe, because I'm optimistic that the sun will stay out today. We've been having a lot of rain here on the East Coast, and we're ready for some sunshine. I'm heading to Raleigh-Durham tonight, and I'm hoping it'll be sunny when I get there at midnight, but who knows? That'll be a little bit late. So there. You know what? We are going to take a quick break, the break that the pause that refreshes, as they like to say in somebody's commercial. Speaking today with Linda Townsend, Grant Gordon, Joe Sherwood. Our topic is health and wellness, HR's new call to action. We've already gone around the table about the meaning and the implications of Fitbitization, about getting your employees to trust you. How much should you know about their health? Is it going to be beneficial? Are there financial advantages and benefits to the company, the bottom line, as well as to people showing up ready and able to do their jobs, whether they're on site or remote? And we have to consider all of those options today. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will pick a couple of topics from my guest notes, notes they sent me before the show and we'll do the roundtable. I know we're tight on time, but we've already had a very, very good intro to this topic. So, oh my goodness, don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial, but you can have a sip of something. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Count them off. Kevin out. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. From setting up the right structures, enabling technology, and compliant operations, to hiring, developing, and cultivating a culture of success, SAP Success Factors is excited to be your partner in redefining what human resources can deliver to business leaders. Changing the Game with HR brings you insights from the movers and shakers who are making this happen. We'll delve into global business challenges from the boardroom to the shop floor and learn what is working and what has to change. All to help you change HR from transactional to transformational. Tune in to the Business Channel to hear today's top human resources business and technology strategy thought leaders share expert insights on how human resources leaders are shaping the future of change for all of us. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Changing the Game with HR, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Changing the Game with HR. Indeed, we are talking about the role of HR in health and wellness programs. Should they, shouldn't they? What about Fitbitization, on-demand, sensors, getting that data for your employees from them? What are you entitled to do with it? Will it pay off for everybody's bottom line and the health and wellness of your workforce? So many questions, so many answers. We're talking today to Linda Townsend, founder of Release Wellbeing Center, Grant Gordon, CEO and co-founder of Artemis Health, A-R-T-E-M-I-S, if you want to look them up, and Joe Sherwood, HCM researcher at SAP Success Factors. So here's a topic Linda Townsend sent me. We're going to make this almost a lightning round, go around very quickly because we have a lot to cover. Linda says, prevention and wellness are grabbing the attention of policymakers, employers, and even the media. Starting in 2014, $200 million in federal grants were awarded over a five-year period to small businesses that implemented wellness programs. Linda, take two minutes, tell us more, and then we'll get Grant and Joe to chat.
chime in. Please go ahead. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, what what's happening with our healthcare system right now is that these preventable illnesses, um, obesity and type two diabetes, and many many others, are basically kind of crashing our healthcare system. So. We're all catching on to the fact that what we need to do is is treat people before they're sick. So to get them to adopt healthier lifestyles and um, and essentially, you know, prevent illness rather than treating illness. And I think how that relates to the fitbitization topic that we're talking about is that. The information that can be gathered from sensors or Fitbits as far as um, exercise habits, sleep, um, nutrition, etc., while it's not necessarily total prevention because they'd be picking up on some sort of um, markers in the body perhaps, they, it's certainly good information that can be used to, to catch things early. Um, or to encourage um, very healthy lifestyles, and it, that will essentially help the save our healthcare system from crashing. Thank you, Linda. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Grant Gordon, Artemis, talk to me. What do you think? Agree, disagree? What do you observe on these programs or how they're being implemented, and who's getting the money? You know, <clears throat> I think it's been a really interesting trend to watch over the last four years that I've been in the space, and that's not when it started, of course. Um, it, we've seen just it, this explosion of programs trying to help chronic diseases, um, as was discussed, um, all kinds of things from sleep, disease management, um, you know, weight loss, all of these things. But there's very little reliable data about which ones actually work. And so... In the original quote that we opened the hour with, um, you know, Johnson & Johnson was claiming a, a 2.71 um, ROI on every mm-hmm. dollar they spend, which is interesting because that doesn't typically play out in the data that we see. Um, and so I think what, what's going to happen is once we, we've had this sort of Cambrian explosion of firms trying to tackle these issues, which is really important, I think employers especially are starting to feel like maybe I shouldn't be paying for all these things just because it was offered to me and they're trying to measure mm-hmm. that and really dial in and you're going to see some uh, natural selection happen and we're going to collapse down to the, the concepts and ideas that are actually driving tangible results in terms of reducing people's you know, short-term, long-term health risk and um, overall cost. Thank you, Grant. Very interesting. Joe Sherwood, would love to get your two cents or however, whatever you got in your pocket there. What Do you agree or disagree with Linda and what Grant added? Go ahead. Sure. I guess uh, the first thing I would add is, uh, you know, my background is in occupational health psychology. And so sort of what we do as occupational health psychologists is we design and create programs and then we measure these outcomes. So I do take a bit issue with Grant's comment saying that there's no effect of these types of programs. I would say there's a lot of measurable um, effect in terms of health and wellness. And so jobs can definitely be designed. Managerial relationships with employees can definitely be designed and, and um, cultivated in such ways that stress is reduced, employees sleep better. Um, and we've seen in our own data actual reductions in objective physical health data, such as cardiovascular disease, uh, lower blood pressure, 
Um, and so I think there is definitely uh, outcomes of impact that can be observed when you really try to promote or prevent illness or promote well- health and wellness. I would also add, though, that I do agree with, with Brandon that it's very difficult to sort of see ROI because if you think about what these programs do, uh, they're not necessarily directly related to a return on investment. They're more indirectly related. And so there are so many different factors that might go into it that are difficult to sort of uh, parse out within the data. And so I think, you know, over time, if the program takes one, two, three years to implement and it's not, and it's, you know, maybe the program management or the data management of that program or the data collection is flawed in some way, then that will bear out in the data and it'll create, you know, more difficulties in terms of finding return on investment. So I think there's definitely challenges there that exist in terms of looking at hard dollars um, spent versus earned in terms of productivity or workforce. But we do on an individual uh, basis see upticks in performance and engagement and, and also, of course, health metrics. So that's sort of my thoughts on that. Thank you. I appreciate it. In the interest of time, Linda, I'm not going to go back to you on this topic, but I'm going to pick something from Grant's list here. Uh, Grant, very interesting, and let's go around with this. You say not all employee wellness programs are created equal, and you add a couple tips. Let me read them, and then you can expand. You say tips for implementing behavioral health wellness programs. Number one, do your research. Find out the impact behavioral health diagnoses are truly having on your population and don't just follow a hunch. Seriously, Grant, some companies are just saying, well, we think, well, you know, well, maybe, well, I thought I saw, well, Mary told me this, and Steve looks like he could use that. Talk to me. Seriously, hunches? I've been absolutely shocked. Um, Coming from outside of the space, my background, like I said, is more in product and online advertising technology. Mm-hmm. And in, in advertising, you measure everything, <laughs> like down to the millisecond. <laughs> because, oh, yeah. Because everything matters. Um, but I think, it, I'm not going to say this is really commentary on the people in health and benefits. I'm going to say this is a symptom of the friction in acquiring data that's reliable and tools that will help you manipulate it. And so they, they don't have much of a choice besides, you know, going to conferences, listening to the talks. You know, a lot of anecdotal, you know, I rolled this out and my employees really liked it. And I think it's working. My vendor told me it's working, but I'm not sure. Um, and, and, and following that way. So I, I think that's why you've seen a lot of solutions um, grow further than they would in other industries without demonstrable proof. Um, but, you know, to an earlier point that was made, it, it sort of depends on what you're looking for. But the challenge is they're not really looking for anything because it's very hard and that's a big part of the mission of Artemis is try to either at least raise awareness that that should be happening so that those dollars are going to affect for the greater good of the country mm-hmm. thank you very much very insightful and uh, a reality check there you opened our eyes to something I'm still shocked about following a hunch oh my goodness and, and uh, you want to talk about the opioid use you say one customer who looked at opioid you want to touch on that use case for us anonymously yeah anonymously so um <laughs> This is actually a great customer. So what happened was, you know, it, these employers and benefits folks go to conferences, and you'll see waves of, of things roll through. So behavioral health has been one this year. Opioids has been one this year. EpiPens was um, hot, you know, six to eight months ago. And so they hear about these things, and they come back home, and they think, okay, do I have a problem with that? Um, and 
So part of being thoughtful is actually determining if you have a problem with that in your population before you go pay, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or more for a program to help impact that. Mm-hmm. And um, when they actually dug into the data, it, it turned out that they had people taking opi- opioids, but very, very few were taking a level at which you would suspect that there was a, a drug mm-hmm. issue there. Um, and it is a problem, um, you know, across the country, but for this particular population, it just happened to be that it wasn't. So just a little warning there to be thoughtful as you approach uh, what you do. Don't just go off what you hear. And hopefully a lot of companies will be positively and pleasantly surprised at what they suspected anecdotally may not be what's happening at all. That was a lesson learned. Joe Sherwood, love to get your thoughts on what Grant shared with us. Not all employee wellness programs are created equal. What do you see, Joe? I 100% agree. You know, in my earlier comment, I'm thinking about it. I'm going, yeah, we're seeing these effects, but we're also trained and and. We live, you know, in an academic model, especially when I was doing a lot of this occupational health psychology research, where you have to publish, and to publish, you really need to find these results. But having said that, there are a lot of people who are carrying out wellness programs who are very well-intentioned, but they might not be able, they might not either have the knowledge or the resources to actually carry them out in a way that's going to have an impact. And so I think that's a really, really important thing to consider when you're either deciding about which program to implement or if you're planning on implementing one or creating one yourself, sort of like a, your own sort of homegrown thing. And the important thing here is understanding before you even get started, what are the metrics that you're interested in? Are you interested in collecting um, financial data and business performance? Are you interested in collecting employee-level data? Are you interested in, uh, in terms of their employee level? Uh, is it, are, you, are you focused more on objective measures of health or subjective? Is it mental health, physical health? Is it performance? And so I think just understanding exactly what you aim to accomplish through these types of programs, having that nailed down in the beginning is really, really important. And then moving on from there, you know, if you know what you're going to track and you know the outcomes you expect, then you can create a program that drives those. But making sure you rely on research and data that already exists um, so that way you're not sort of reinventing the wheel. Thank you. We don't want to do that. Linda Townsend, love to get your quick thoughts on what the other panelists just shared about employee wellness programs created equal or not so much. What do you see? Um, yeah, I, I'm going to agree with with both of the other panelists. Um, what I have seen or, or the studies that I have read about this indicate that a lot of organizations approach these kind of wellness programs as a one-off. You know, they'll have a biggest loser contest where it's a short-term gain and a lot of people Mm -hmm. get involved and they lose weight and it's, you know, fun and competitive, but as soon as the contest is over, they they put the weight back on. Or um, a running program, um, which is fun and, and gets everybody involved with learning how to, you know, do a 5K together. But again, once the 5K is over, they go back to their to their old habits. So they're not focused on lifestyle change. They're focused on one specific goal, and they don't have long-term benefits. So any, any wellness programs that are focused more holistically and focused on, um, on lifestyle change are, are far more successful and, and actually have impact the, the long-term health of the employee and the bottom line for the organization. Thank you, Linda. Quick story. I worked for a 
let's just say, uh, non-U.S. based. Uh, they're known for as a phone manufacturer back in the day. The name starts with N. We'll just leave it a short name. And I worked for them in White Plains. I was doing um, marketing for one of their, what did we do? We acquired a... Uh, Yes, we acquired a software package for businesses, which was not part of the phone division, obviously. And um, there was some talk around the office of bringing in a Weight Watchers class. And I had been to Weight Watchers and done very, very well, and I wanted to continue. And I thought, well, that would be interesting to have a chance once a week to have a one-hour meeting where we sat down with a leader and did something productive about our health. And it never happened. Can you guess why, Linda? Um... I'll tell you. Nobody no. wanted to admit they needed it. <laughs> no, nobody, nobody wanted to be nobody, known. Nobody thought. Nobody wanted to be known as the group that wanted to have a Weight Watchers leader. So, right. so we just right. we just kept importing chocolate bars. We just kept bringing the. I'm not going to tell you how that one went for me, but anyway, long story. Joe Sherwood, I want to get one. We're going to squeak in something here before we go to our crystal ball predictions round. In about three minutes, Joe. Uh, let's talk about the HR function overall. Let's bring this up a little higher level, away from the benefits programs. You told me before the show in the last 10 years, HR has begun the move from administrative-based functions, which are quickly becoming automated, yes, to strategic-based functions. The question moves from, are we paying our employees on our employees on time to, do we have the right employees to fulfill our organization's goals? And then I would add, do we have the right programs to ensure once we find the right employees, are we helping to keep them healthy? So, Joe, why don't you just give us a quick overview, and then I think we'll go back to Linda and do our predictions. So, Joe, what do you think? Sure. You know, I, I really would relate this back to some of Linda's comments about thinking about the worker holistically. And so, you know, in our research, it's, it's never just one thing. It's, you know, we think about performance and engagement. What are sort of the indicators or predictors of performance? And it's, again, it's never just one thing. It's many, many things. And so thinking about health, health is definitely a major thing that contributes to our performance. Um, and it, of course, depends on the industry that you're in, but even taken on an extreme example, like an athlete, their health, their employees of the organizations that they work for, their health is, is more directly related to their performance than in many, many other jobs. But, um, you know, your performance, if you're uh, mentally healthy and you're physically healthy, then you're more able to be engaged you're more able to have positive relationships with your coworkers. And mm -hmm. so thinking about HR more broadly speaking, HR has always been involved with the care of their employer workforces. And if we narrowly focus on just a few metrics like performance and annual reviews and goal setting um, and skills, then we're really missing out on a, an enormous component that actually contributes to their overall functioning. And so I would just say that, yeah, HR should definitely be interested in, in employee health and wellness. And, of course, it's really important to consider um, how tracking those types of metrics might be received and then doing the legwork beforehand that ensures that you have those positive relationships of trust built so that employees know when you're tracking and you're um, interested in their health and wellness that it's about them and it's about their own progress and um, their own future potential. And so... Um, making sure that, that organizations themselves are healthy. 
Thank you, Joe. Very well put. I just want to read your last comment here. Linda, get ready. I'm going to give you 60 seconds for predictions. But Joe said in his notes, this really sums it up to me, Joe. You say, as stewards of employee data in HR, we, meaning HR, must thoughtfully consider who has access to employee data, who controls the data, and how the data are used. And, of course, data is plural, and you successfully did that verb right. Thank you very much, Joe Sherwood. Linda Townsend, I'm circling around to you. I can give you 60 seconds for your prediction, really 60 seconds for everybody now because we're tight on time. Let's fast forward to around the year 2020. I'm kind of thinking... Barbara Wawa, remember, 2020. So 2020, less than three New Year's Eves away, I've been reminded. If everybody's got something chilled on ice for that special occasion, let me know what it is, and we'll, we'll have a good show that night before. So, Linda, what's going to change if we met again to have this conversation in the next couple of years? 60 seconds, Linda Townsend, go. Uh, well, the technology will advance. It, it is advancing. So there will be more information gathered um, and more ways to apply it and use it. And I think that uh, I, we'll become more comfortable with that as, as it becomes more prevalent. Um, but it circles back to the trust that we've all touched on during this discussion. And, um, and that trust will need to be observed. And I think there'll be more restrictions on how companies can use that information as well just to, to maintain the boundary of that trust. Thank you very much. Well put. Grant Gordon at Artemis Health, talk to me. 60 seconds. What do you predict, Grant, will change about this conversation? You know, looking at our customers today, <clears throat> we, we really think of them as the vanguard of, of companies that are trying to responsibly use data to for, for the betterment and the stewardship, to, to your point, of their employees. And I think what's going to drive that increased trust and comfort with um, companies using data is the companies that we're seeing today are going to start coming out with case studies and examples of how they're able to find real win-wins for the company and for the employees. Those are going to get a lot more publicity, and that's going to drive a shift in thinking around especially since America is already so employer-centric from a healthcare and benefits perspective, mm -hmm. um, really cementing that in, and cementing their role as a agent for change in healthcare. Thank you, Grant. All good, positive. And Joe Sherwood, I saved exactly 60 seconds for you. What say you? Predictions, please. Great. Well, I would add that um, you know we're going to have more digital natives entering the workforce as time goes on. And so I think a lot of this stuff is going to be more normalized. You know, in three years is a short amount of time, but if we were to have this conversation in, say, 10, I'd bet we'd be talking more about internables and how they're freaky. Uh, that sounds kind of sci-fi now, but I think in the future, people might be talking about uh, whether or not we should be tracking data and, and blood tracking data on a continuous basis that's already from a device that's in our body. Uh, but again, I said that's a little bit in the future. So now I think it's more on um, accommodating digital natives as they enter the workforce and and thinking about policies that are going to be enacted more broadly speaking. I, I wonder if in uh, the next 10 years when people go to work in a big company, you'll enter a private little chamber and a robot named either Mary or Bob, <laughs> depending on your gender, will greet you, or somebody in between, Bob Mary or Mary Bob, will greet you and will put you in this room and say, okay, what did you really have for dinner? you got to cut back on the cheesecake, Joe. I'm not talking to you specifically, just general Joe. Linda, we can tell you worked out and you did 15 minutes of treadmill before you came to work. Great. And Grant, that drink you blended with the, the, the coconut that vinegar was great. You're going to have a great day. And then you're led into the workplace and you say, ah, 
I'm on the right track. But I'm dreaming. What can I say? We've been talking about health and wellness, HR's new call to action. Is it controversial? It could be, but you're the steward of your employees' data. Use it well. Use it carefully and think forward. Fast, future-proof your wellness programs and make sure they're going to be good and healthy and alive in 10 years down the line. Linda Townsend, Release Wellbeing Center. Thank you so much, Linda. Grant Gordon at Artemis Health. We appreciate your time. And, of course, Joe Sherwood at SAP Success Factors. Shout out to Dr. Patty Fletcher at SAP for picking the topic and inviting such a smart panel. And to Kevin at at the radio station, our engineer today. Thank you very much. This is the end of our broadcast week. What can I say? Five live shows, and we enjoyed every one of them. So I'm going to do my call to action now. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Be healthy, be well, think positively, and go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Changing the Game with HR, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.